having a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romas with you. And today, we're going to be talking about gangs, guns, and some violence. And for that, I've got Doug Spencer on the show. Doug first joined the Vancouver police in March of 1990. He was a third-generation VPD member. In 1995, he joined the gang crime unit, where he served until 2005, when he was transferred to the youth squad. Doug is a court-recognized expert on gangs in British Columbia. He created a presentation titled The Truth About Gangs, which he's presented hundreds of times to uh, various community members. Doug is also a member of Odd Squad Productions, which is a nonprofit society that educates the public about major social problems such as gangs and drugs. Doug has been recognized for his policing with awards such as in 2008, he received the Police Officer of the Year Award for gang prevention amongst youth. And uh, Doug has since retired. He served uh, several years with Vancouver Transit Police after that. Uh, and today he continues to present with Odd Squad Productions. So welcome, Doug. Thank you, Nathan. Pleasure to be here. Hey, and uh, I'm glad we could get you on. I'm always excited to talk to a, a fellow gang cop. So we always have much in common. So it's usually generally an easier uh, thing for me to host. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, you know what, if we could start kind of at the beginning, because um, you've done quite a bit in your career and you've been pretty involved with the, the gang world. So can you, but can you start us at the very beginning, um, being a third generation uh, police officer, maybe tell us about growing up uh, and where you came from. Yeah, I grew up in North Vancouver. Uh, of course, my dad was still in the drug squad, um, a detective in the Vancouver drug squad. Um, we used to, you know, like any son, you tail around with your dad. I'd go to the station and stuff when I was a kid and meet the other policemen. And they're always really friendly, cordial men and women. And um, actually heard my dad talk to kids about drugs a few times on the radio and school. And I guess that always resonated in the back of my mind about doing prevention because you know, in Vancouver, you, you drive down the 100 East Hastings and it, it's just uh, total misery, those people, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of young people, too, from Edmonton and Calgary, they all end up in Vancouver because of the open drug market. And, uh, yeah, you, you know, you just want to pass it forward and get those people help somehow. It, it makes, it's no fun arresting them over and over again. Mm -hmm. You're doing nothing, right? So, you know, after a few years of burying young kids in the gang life and seeing kids overdose and stuff, I just thought, you know what? My calling is prevention. Save those kids from getting down in the 100 East Hastings and, and dying at the end of a gun mm -hmm. over ridiculous drug gang stuff, right? Yeah. Well, and so you said you went to the police station quite a bit. You, you're obviously around a lot of police officers. Did your dad, and I'm guessing it was your grandfather, was the first generation, uh, did they ever push you into this work or did they say, hey, don't do this work? No. It, I mean, it's like a kid hanging around the, his father who builds houses. Mm -hmm. You think that's cool, right? What your dad does. So, you know, my grandfather was actually in the uh, Northwest police before the RCMP. Oh, wow. And a couple of the guys he knows were involved in chasing the mad trapper in Alberta. That's how far back my grandfather goes, right? <laughs> he, uh, he established the dog squad in Vancouver. Oh, cool. We're talking like way back, right? Mm -hmm. He used to ride the police car out of, out of the station on the side of the uh, fenders, like some movie from the 40s, right? <laughs> bizarre did uh you have any friends or other family that went into policing around the same time you did well obviously my dad's friends were policemen and then i got to know some of their kids mm. who eventually became policemen as well similar to me right um 
you know, I played a lot of uh, sports when I was young, mm-hmm. uh, traveled all over the place, went played rugby in England and Ireland and Wales and played baseball for, represented the under 21 Canadian team, went down to the States. And uh, I would always see officers around doing what we do here. Yeah. It, it's, we're all from the same cloth, yeah. right? Serve and protect. So it, it's just something that I, it was a no brainer for me to gravitate towards that. When um, you're kind of coming up through school and you know, you're getting to 17, 18, um, was this still like number one on your mind? This, you knew this was going to be your career path or did you kind of explore any other options or, you know, go to university and see what else is out there? Yeah, no, I worked construction for a little while. Enjoyed that, made some money, got to pay bills like everybody else. <laughs> but it, I always, it was always in the back of my mind to come back to that. And then uh, there was an opportunity for me to work at a place called the Coordinated Law Enforcement Unit, where I intercepted phone calls and stuff for the on these drug files. I was a special constable. Oh wow! And uh, it it just segued right into police work, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty cool. You get to do that even before you're in the policing. Uh, it's better than like I mean, some of the pre hires they got to get uh, work front counter or something. They just deal with collisions all day. I mean. What you're saying there, that sounds a lot cooler. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it certainly was bizarre. It's like something that you do at the end of your career, right? Mm-hmm. You do uh, tap big investigations into these drug uh, gangs and stuff. I was involved in the Squamish Five terrorists in Vancouver years ago. Uh, they blew up a hydro station in the island and stuff. There are these extremists. And I did the wiretap on that. So... It's really interesting that you get by listening to people on the phone, you get to understand their criminal mind. Yeah, and that when I went out on the street, it's it's there. I now have that uh, in my knowledge base, right? To yeah. deal with people on the street, I I kind of knew what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that helps you relate to them. You might come in with some pre-existing knowledge, right? And uh, you're just better off at talking to them. Totally. Yeah. You know, and they're even drug addicts, people think drug addicts are bad people. They're not bad people. Mm-hmm. They're people that have made bad decisions. They've had horrific stuff happen to them in their life, which makes them, you know, try and numify it with drugs. Yeah. And they end up being addicted. Right. So it, you can't talk down to people like that. Mm. They're no different than anybody else. I know a policeman's brother in Vancouver that's an addict. Mm-hmm. I know lawyers, doctors, and all sorts that have had something happen in their life. And uh, for whatever reason, they've spiraled down that uh, addiction trip, right? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, once it gets its claws into you, it's uh, pretty hard to get loose of it. What? Uh, so when did you apply to the police? And can you kind of walk us through what that process was like uh, what, back in the 90s? Yeah. Or late eighties. Yeah, no, I went and took some college courses at Langara, uh, psychology and sociology and stuff, kind of showing because back then there was a, they wanted you to have at least two years university education, mm. right? So I had to kind of show them that I could handle the educational factor and the JI and that I could write essays and and do all that kind of stuff. Because, of course, as you know, police is all about writing. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. right. So, um, you know, like when you write an ITO, the people who really know how to write get warrants to go get this and that, right? Because of their skill mm-hmm. in writing and explaining the evidence and stuff. So, um, yeah, I got involved in that. And then I put my application in. I was all, all playing lots of sports, so I was physically fit. That was an issue. Um, I actually, there was a deputy chief in Vancouver who I ended up becoming friends with, his name's Steric, and he wanted to show that there was no favoritism with me getting on the job. So he made me go and take this, um, English equivalency exam at city hall in Vancouver. Oh, 
and I went and took it and I got like 98% on it because I mean, that exam is for people that are here as immigrants and stuff. Yeah. So it was a really easy English exam, but you know, good on him. He's trying to show that there, there shouldn't be any favoritism, right? The yeah. person that's best suited for it should get the job. That's the way it is. So eventually I got hired and then I got in 2008, when I got office through the year, I went to the Vancouver police ball mm. and deputy Sterick standing there and he walks up to me and he says, Doug, he says, you know, I was wrong about you at the start and you've really proven to be a really good officer and an asset for Vancouver. And not often do you see deputy chiefs kind of eat crow like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it goes to the type of guy he was. He was a leader. Right. So it was cool. Who presented the award? Like wh- who uh, is that for all of policing in BC or is this through the uh, Vancouver, Vancouver Board of Trade? Yeah. For okay. the Vancouver Police. That's the officer of the year and stuff, okay. which was a genre. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, at the time I can remember now, uh, the deputy chief now in Vancouver, it was between me and her. Mm. And she wrote this amazing paper and and uh, thing dealing with the mentally ill. Oh, okay. Which, as you know, today, boy, that's front and center, right? Yeah. Everybody realizes that these people have issues like that so to win that award was just uh mind-blowing actually Mm -hmm. yeah it's quite an accomplishment i mean think of the hundreds if not a couple thousand members that a service could have uh and you're the one right you got chosen for that and was that one uh, voted on by peers as well or how do they pick it no it's well i was selected by peers Mm. and put in um but uh, it's the board of trade, I think has a great deal to do with it. It's presented to them and these leaders, business community leaders, yeah. uh, select. And at the time, um, it was right after the Bindi Joe hall era in Vancouver, where there was like 50 something murders in a couple of years. Right. And the, the big Jillian guest trial and all this stuff, mm-hmm. uh, where, um, Bindi slept with one or one of the Bindi's boys slept with one of the jurors and he got off in the murder charge. Oh, <laughs> it ended up becoming a movie. It obviously why. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of young guys getting mowed down by gangs. So me doing this prevention piece, I think these business leaders were like sick of seeing all these young people waste their lives. Mm-hmm. And hence they chose me. Okay. Well, um, maybe we'll, we'll get back to this point, but um, talking back just about like the application process and then training, what was training like back in that time? Uh, very physical. Okay. We used to do runs. It, it would be similar to like joining the Marine Corps. Oh, really? Where you're just, oh yeah, they just run you in physical fitness, climbing ropes. Um, all sorts of stuff. You had to be really fit. Wow. Right. And I'm a bigger guy, six, three, like two thirty, Right. So the, I had guys that were a lot smaller than me that were hockey players. And these guys were like rabbits running around. Right. They're just so <laughs> it was tough for me, but that's part of it. Right. You got to show them that you're able to uh, handle the pressure and the, the stress and stuff before you hit the street. Right? And one thing I found really interesting is they made us put on the boxing gloves Yeah, at the academy, which I don't know if it's done anymore. No. <laughs> but half of the, half of the uh, members from my class were like lawyers and stuff. Mm. They had never been in a street fight. Yeah. So when you go out in the street to arrest somebody, as you know, it can go bad really fast. Mm-hmm. And, and the next thing you know, you're in a punch up with some guy or girl and uh, you can be in the losing end of that pretty easy if they catch you solid with a lucky punch or kick or whatever right so that's part of the training to be actually feel what it's like to go through a physical encounter with somebody mm-hmm. it prepares you for the street right yeah and i think that's a big part of what's missing nowadays um i'm a firm believer that the the first time that you get hit 
shouldn't be when you're wearing a gun and you brought, you know, tools, some may say weapons to a fight. Uh, you don't want that to be your first experience. Um, cause yeah, like you're saying, that could be your last one. So not the time. Yeah. No, that, that's a really good point that you got to know, you know, that force continuum thing, right. Where you show up yeah, and hopefully they see the form and chill out and everything, which is 90% of the time, but you get into these physical fights where a guy's jacked up on math or Coke or something. And they don't feel any pain. Yeah. So you get a nightstick. You're trying to make them comply. You try all sorts of wrist locks and holds. And uh, next thing you know, he yards a knife out. Yeah. But the public doesn't understand that we don't fight fair. We're not there to be a fair fighter. Yeah. And when they pull a knife out, you pull your gun out. That's the force continuum. Yeah. Right? You go home to your family at the end of the day. Yeah. So. It's certainly the last choice. And after you get experienced, you're pretty good at talking people out of that stuff, right? Well, and even like you're saying about it being so physical, um, you know, this is kind of one of the things that I hear in the debate today is, you know, is the, the training representative of the job. And when you said climbing ropes, I instantly thought of like, I've never had to climb a rope on the job, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's about, are you willing to do all these things? You know, they're going to put you through different stressors to see, do you just start whining? Do you just crumble under uh, any kind of adversity? It, it, they don't, I don't think people realize there's a mental aspect to it as well. It's not just, oh, I'm just running you to bag drive you and, and make you throw up or something. It's to see, can I push you to your limits? Can you be pushed to your limits? And how do you respond when you're at that? So I remember going through depot uh, to a lesser extent when I got to Edmonton. They just made you do all kinds of crazy things just to make you do them. And then they just want to see yeah. who's, who's the first one to start complaining or who steps up and, and shows some sort of leadership. And says like, hey, uh, I'm going to help these people on the team get through this. Or you know, you maybe provide some sort of words of encouragement to people. It, and and that is completely missed in the training now. I I believe from what I see and from what I hear from people in there. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, the, it, the experience thing you can't teach at the academy. Mm -hmm. You've got to go out in the street and it, literally experience it. Right, how to deal with these people with really severe mental issues and stuff. And, you know, since I first came on, of course, they didn't have tasers and stuff when I came on. Uh, they just started dealing with OC spray mm -hmm. as one of the, the force continue or the forced options. And people don't realize that, you know, people die. The taser causes excited delirium. Uh, some people die even from the bear spray if they're asthmatic. They can, you know, suffocate and die. Those things are there as an option, a lower option than going right to the gun. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The police, they, the police are not there to hurt anybody. Mm. They're hurting. They're there, first of all, to go home at the end of the day, but they don't want to hurt anybody. Policemen, they all have kid sons and daughters. Yeah. They know what it's like. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it just doesn't go right. And it's usually because the suspect, did this, took this drug, made a bad decision, whatever, and it escalates, right? Yeah, much of what we do is is very reactive. Um, and people's behavior will dictate a response, right? And depending on the officer, male, female, are you 230 pounds? Are you 110 pounds? Uh, how much sleep you got? <laughs> are you in, standing out in the winter? Are you standing out in the summer? All these things come into play and will determine the type of uh, response you might give to somebody. And, and every single cop is different. You can send 20 cops into a situation. You're going to get 20 different ways of handling it potentially. So um, it's very interesting hearing about the training. Uh, I know Edmonton used to have a reputation of uh, their fitness guy. I think he was called Dr. Death. And he just ran people. <laughs> so... Um, so when, once you're done training, 
how long, actually, how long was the training back then? Still kind of six months? Yeah, no, it's four months. Then you go hmm. on the road with a field trainer, then okay. back in for final four months, and uh, then you graduate and hit the road. Oh, really? So it was like an eight-month program almost. No, a little more than that. So like probably four months, then three months with a field trainer, Yeah, and then another three or four months in the academy. I, okay. I can't remember the exact number, but roughly. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I got sent in to right out of the academy to District 3 in Vancouver, which is a pretty rough area, the east end of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the first time I pulled a car over, I said, I'm in the uh, 1300 block of Wall Street. And uh, man, without me saying anything, three police cars showed up. Oh, really? I was in the worst part of town in front of this low-income housing place that police don't just go there alone. Okay, yeah. And I have that experience, right? So these guys talk about have your back. They knew I was young in the job, and they had my back. Yeah. And it it turned out to be a, a no big deal. A guy arrested him on a warrant, and uh, he's a drug addict and stuff. And there's drugs in the car and knives and swords and stuff. But you know, the, I was in an area that I really wasn't quite prepared for. Yeah. In my first day of the job, right? But those all those other senior members knew it. Yeah. Well, and again, I mean, it just speaks to the training. You gotta. You never know what you're gonna get yourself into, right? Yeah. As soon as you walk out those doors. Um, so you worked in, you said District 3, and yeah. that's the east side of Vancouver. Um, how does your, what kind of goes through your career that leads you to the gang work? Well, very heavy gang presence. They all live down in there. Mm. Like I, I grew up um, in North Van, but it, in East Van, when I was there working, I was running into all sorts of ethnic gang members, Vietnamese guys, South South Asian guys, Chinese gangs were prevalent then. And they all live in that east end of Vancouver where I was working. So just through going to calls and stuff over a couple year period, I was putting in all these reports about their activities and then i developed a couple informants that were telling me what's going on with these murders and the gangs Mm -hmm. and of course the reports were coming across the desk all the time of the sergeant in the gang unit and he he called me into his office one day after parade and he said hey doug you seem to know all these guys Mm -hmm. and i says i run into them every day i live amongst them yeah and he's why don't you put your name in for the gang unit we could use somebody that knows who these guys are. And that's basically how I got in there. Yeah. Well, the sheer volume, I mean, uh, that, and that was kind of one of the questions I was going to ask later, but was, you know, what type of gangs were you dealing with? So was it a lot of, uh, even though there's different uh, ethnic groups, is it a lot of street gang stuff or was it like street gang all the way through to organized crime that you had exposure to? Oh, yeah, there was uh, the street gangs or the, the kids on the street selling the dope for all these gang members. And uh, they were constantly in and around the schools recruiting kids to work for them. Uh, I had really close relationships with all the school officers in East Van. And they would tell me when there's one or two kids that are kind of stepping out and mm-hmm. meeting guys that show up to the school and their Escalade and stuff, right? It, it just it sets off alarms to policemen. Like what's this kid doing jumping in an escalade at lunch hour. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I work kind of hand in hand with the school officers and we, we turned a lot of these kids around and got them back into school away from these gang members, but, uh, we certainly lost a few, right. Well, and like, have you seen a, a big change between when you first started in the gang world, uh, to now is there a lot of difference in maybe i'll start with like the motivations of why someone might get into the gang has it kind of evolved or just changed yeah initially back then when i first started the gangs were of course usually impoverished kids mm-hmm. they come from a low-income area their parents maybe one or two they, or both could be in jail they have no role models in their lives they're just looking for a family 
basically that someplace to fit in mm-hmm. and feel belong to something. Uh, a lot of the gangs, though, in the last oh, 10 or 15 years, I call them Facebook gangsters. Yeah. Because they're taking selfies of one another with guns and stuff at the Toronto Raptors game and stuff to show that there's somebody important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we had a case where Toronto sent some pictures out here and said, do you know who these guys are? They were at a Raptors game. Somebody told me they're from Vancouver. And here's this big rap star. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of Drake's underling Raptors or rappers uh, was friends with a guy in Vancouver that he met. I don't know where uh, that is wanted for a murder in Vancouver, the South Asian guy. Mm-hmm. He'd murdered a couple people. So we'd been looking for him for months. There he is sitting behind the Raptors bench. <laughs> so by the time I zing back to this guy in Toronto, hey, that guy there, he's wanted for two murders. Mm-hmm. Well, the guy was long gone. But that shows you how international these guys are. They're all over Canada, all over the world. Yeah. Um, I, I get hits from guys in the Philippines. Guys in Greece, England, you name it. Yeah. Right? The gangsters in Vancouver and Edmonton and stuff, the higher-up guys, they're international. Well, and maybe um, maybe back in the day, it used to be more, you had like one or two true uh, groups that were kind of running things. And then you just had a whole bunch of people below. And like you're saying, it's people looking for uh, belonging, family, protection uh those types of things were the motivators for getting into these groups but now um where we have a much larger middle class people are much more uh well off nowadays in general uh we've basically elevated a whole section of society where it's not so much about just the 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 you know family structure like a lot of the guys that we deal with come from a complete home they've got the two parents they might have a couple siblings the parents provide them with a vehicle they go to school um i don't know how many of our guys actually like hold down real jobs monday to friday eight to four and then they go play gangster at night and on the weekends and some of them are shooting or killing people and it's i just like i I almost want to lose my mind every time I talk to a normal citizen. And <laughs> they go, well, well, that person, I know them and they they work at this store or whatever service. And I was like, yeah, you don't know what they're doing at night. I know what they're doing at night and they're leading a double life. Or, you know, And this is for quite a few of our guys. It's not always the uh, tragic story of, I I had all these things happen to me when I was a kid and I had no real shot in life. Um, and then this group came along and took me under their wing. Now it's like you say, Facebook gangster, it's for the money. Like money is uh, a, a huge motivator for these guys right now. Um, usually I say guys because it's mostly guys, but there are a lot of girls involved in this now. But um, yeah. the guys do it for the money and the women, um, some of the influence. But there's even guys who like, they'll kill each other over 500 bucks. You are like, People used to have to spend tens of thousands to get you kill somebody. Now it's a few hundred dollars. You feel slighted. You got to go uh, protect your rep. So yeah. you're willing to kill a guy. And uh, I mean, that's part of this podcast. And we're trying to get these people to realize this is what's really going on out there. So yeah, they just don't know, right? And it, they, some of the, a lot of them are trying to be something they see. Mm-hmm. So they see right. Uh, videos and movies and stuff and it, they think it gets them this status thing yeah right they're the big important guy or whatever they don't realize that once you get to be that guy all those guys under you are gunning for you yeah right you have a big x on the back and any one of them can take you out to be the guy yeah like you were so it's just, uh, and you know, I, I say this when I go to talk to kids at schools, every murder I investigated in Vancouver, and we're talking hundreds and hundreds, 
somebody in their own gang either set them up or sold them out. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fact. They want to be they want their Escalade and all their money. Take out the boss. I'm the new boss. I, I've seen that run true about a hundred times in gangs in Vancouver. The the perception is gangs, well, they got my back. They do not have your back. Mm. They have a gun to the back of your head, is what they have. Right? Yeah. It's all about making kids realize the reality because they're living in a fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess you lack that, like when you, especially when you're a younger person, you lack that, uh, uh, not perception, but you just lack that uh, maybe experience in life to know that, hey, what these people are saying or how they're presenting themselves is not real. And there's all these situations where things can go really bad. Um, and you just don't have that experience to really know that. So, uh, one of the group, um, guys that I know you had spoken in an article you'd sent is, uh, Gurmit Dak and Soup Dak. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about their situation, uh, and, and your involvement with those groups? Cause I think it was really good at showing how, you know, they've got family, um, and, you tried to help one brother and tried to help the other brother and just kind of the final outcome of, of that whole situation. Yeah. Well, I first met Gurmeet in grade five. We went to Henderson elementary in East Vancouver. He's a tiny little guy, not very big, but he had the gift of the gap. Mm. He could talk guys into anything. And before you knew it, he got into high school. And of course, I had this kind of rapport with him. He was always actually quite respectful when I talked to him in the street. And uh, we checked him one day and he had a list of names in his pocket. And I'm like, what's this? And trying to figure it out. Well, what he was doing, he had all these great big South Asian kids were extorting all the kids in his school. There was over 100 kids on that list. They were all giving Gurmeet their lunch money. Oh, jeez. And if you didn't give them your lunch money, these great big South Asian guys, huge, would come and beat you up. Yeah. Like he learned very early in life, he had the gift. And, you know, uh, at the time of his demise, I, I went to his funeral. There was Hell's Angels there. There was UN gang members he was probably the biggest drug dealer in the West Coast. Mm. He was known by all up and down the West Coast for his drug dealing. So before he got murdered, his brother, little brother, Stuk, mm. was hanging out with a bunch of bad guys, his old friends. And he contacted me from prison. He says, Doug, can you go talk to my brother? He's going to end up like me. Mm-hmm. He said, he's hanging around with the wrong guys. I know there's guys that have hits out on all my friends. He's going to get in the crosshairs of a rifle. So I, I went to their family home on Main Street, and I went and talked to him. I got took him out in the car, and I says, man, you're heading down the wrong road. You don't want to be like your brother. Yeah. Your brother's in jail for another four or five years, and when he gets out, there's guys trying to kill him. Yeah. I said, you're a smart young guy. you got to figure it out. And I said, just so you know, your brother sent me to talk to you, mm-hmm. right? Because he loves you. So I had to talk with him and I developed a rapport with him. He respected me that I reached out to him and stuff. And the next thing I know, I'm at the uh, Vancouver Police Retirement Dinner. And uh, I get the phone call. Hey, Suk and his bodyguard just got whacked at the casino in Burnaby, right? Mm. And people have this perception that I think, oh, that's great. He got whacked. For me, that was a failure. What what could I have done to make that kid realize where he was heading? Right. I I tried everything I could. Um, I actually gave him a copy of his brother did a a taped interview with us talking to young kids about gangs. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll see it in that presentation I I send you. And uh, I took him a copy and I said, listen to your brother, man. He's living that life. He knows where he's going. Yeah. But he didn't listen, right? Well, I think people uh, on the outside of law enforcement, 
don't always realize just the type of work that police officers do and how you um, kind of insert yourself into some people's lives and you try to make a, a difference. You try to make a change in there. Um, some people think we're just there to pick on them or whatever it might be, but it's yeah. definitely not the case. You don't see that. It's you're, you know, you're trying to make a positive change because either something with that person kind of resonates with you, you build that rapport. And then, um, you know, you can have, even though they're out doing illegal stuff, uh, you can still have that relationship with them, a professional relationship. And like you said, they know you're still the police and you've got your job to do. But if you can try and get them out of that lifestyle, which might have a further effect on you know their friends or family who are getting involved. So uh, yeah, definitely an important piece to get across to the public. Well, I, I had this thought in my head. It, it's very hard to measure your success about gang prevention and stuff. Uh, I've had dozens and dozens of ex-gang members contact me now on social media, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all these things. Yeah. And I end up talking to them and connecting with them and they, and they say general generality, uh, you basically saved my life. I, I was heading down that path. All my buddies are all dead now. Yeah. Right. I run a successful business. I'm married. I got a couple kids. Uh, I figured it out. Right. That is a win-win mm -hmm. for me. It, you know, it, it makes me feel like the 27,000 kids I presented to, um, you know, if one gets it, I'll keep talking. Yeah. Right. It, it's just me and you know, it's frustrating for us to know that a lot of these young guys and gals have potential. They're just getting sent in the wrong direction. Yeah. Right. Well, and you know what? I've had this conversation many times with people where I say, end of the day, no matter what's going on in someone's life, nothing will change and nothing will get better until they accept responsibility for their own decisions. At some point, they have to take ownership of their own life, realize what I'm doing is not working and I have to make the change because it's, you know, nobody can physically make you do anything. Nobody can uh, make you go out and commit crimes. Uh, but I, and I get, and I can appreciate that it's hard to get out of that lifestyle, especially if people are looking to kill you. Um, but ultimately it's up to the person to change their life and it'll never get better for them if they don't accept responsibility for their decisions going forward. Totally. But just before we kind of get on to talking about what you're doing right now and, and your current work, uh, I did want to ask about uh, two things. Um, one might be a little bit of a longer explanation, so I'll, I'll try that first. Just the expert, you're a gang expert. For people, can you explain what that means and um, how you become recognized as a gang expert? Yeah, there's a, uh, in Vancouver, we had a criteria of six things that would deem somebody a gang member. And out of that six, you had to have at least three, plus the, the main one being that you're doing all the criminality you're doing for the betterment of the gang, mm. right? And there's a list I used to have to go through in court. And the purpose of it was to deem that person as a member of the Hells Angels, as a member of Bindi's crew or whatever, for bail hearings, for uh, sentencing, right? You're not showing that this is a, a one-off guy who fired a gun off and accidentally killed somebody. This guy's done this six times. And he's always with these guys. And they're a guy, they're a group, a gang that sells drugs in the downtown east side, mm -hmm. the addicts, right? So it, it's, it takes a lot of experience. I, I passed this on a while ago in the uh, online training we did when uh, COVID was going on. Of course, we couldn't get in person. And I did an online thing, and a couple guys from Saskatchewan from their gang unit took what I taught them. They related it to the local gangs out there, mostly uh, Native kids, right? Mm -hmm. First Nations. 
And uh, they went to court and the judge wouldn't accept their evidence because they had had less than two years experience in the gang unit, even though they were experienced officers. Okay. So to be deemed an expert in court, the judges, it weighs pretty heavy that you have to be an expert, right? And I mean, I had worked in the gang unit for, when I was made an expert, I had been on the gang unit for seven years already. Wow. And I've been involved in hundreds of murders, thousands of shooting investigations. Uh, I was handling probably 40 or 50 informants, mm-hmm. writing up debriefs. I could basically, if there was a shooting in Vancouver, I could phone a couple sources that night and I would know what the shooting was over and who did it before yeah. the end of the night. Yeah. Yeah. We see that here. Right. And collect the evidence and charge whoever you can. But I mean, there's certainly situations like Hell's Angels uh, murders, pretty tough to deal with because they're bringing in some outside contract killer from the states or wherever that shoots the guy and leaves the next day, never to return. Mm-hmm. Tough to prove that case, right? Yeah. A lot of the local gangs, they use some young little 15 or 16 year old kid. Here's a gun, go kill that guy and you'll be part of our gang. Mm-hmm. Well, you can solve those. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. and you went, they kind of, some of the stuff you were saying there, uh, you brought up bail reform. I should probably should ask this on our, just the last thing we were talking about. But um, is example that you sent about a guy that uh, you arrested there three three times in a three-week period uh, and just kind of what happened after that. Can you talk a bit about the bail and some of the issues maybe we're seeing with these groups right now and how basically everybody's just allowed out? Yeah, it's just a um, revolving door. It's ridiculous. Some of these guys have four or five serious violent offenses probably a couple with guns and a history and convictions of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And you, you go to court, well, the bail reform system, right. Yeah. A danger to the public. You have no fixed address. You continue the offense. Mm -hmm. Two of those three, all of these guys had. Right. So I would write a bail hearing show cause why this guy is a danger to the public. Why he shouldn't be out. And judges out here in Vancouver are the most liberal judges in Canada, not even close. They let everybody out, mm-hmm. right? I know guys that I put in to be held in custody and they got out and I saw the gangster out in the street the following week and he's like, shit, man, why didn't you hold me in jail? I don't want to be out here. They're going to kill me. Yeah. Yep. Right. And it, it's just ridiculous that the case you're talking about, this guy, he shot a guy at a pool hall over nothing. The guy like said something to him that he didn't like, and he shot him. Uh, he shot another guy in the stomach because they were at a karaoke in Vancouver. And when he went to the uh, washroom, some guy at the bar started talking to his girlfriend. Well, his girlfriend's a pretty gal, right? And as soon as he came out of the washroom, the shooter, he says, what are you doing talking to my girlfriend? And the, the victim says, oh, sorry, man. I didn't know she was with anybody. Yeah. Take it easy. And he walk away and the guy shoots him in the gut, tries to shoot him in the head when he goes down. Mm-hmm. And he shoots another guy. And each of those cases, I knew he did it. Uh, when he shot the guy in the karaoke, our strike force went and surveilled him and they caught him in the same Kappa tracksuit he wore for the shooting. It had the victim's blood all over it. Wow. So it's a it's a no-brainer case. This guy is he's done. And he confesses to it too that he'd been drinking in a, a interrogation. He says, Yeah, I was drinking. I went to the washroom. I, I lost my nut and I shot the guy. Mm-hmm. So what does Crown do? They let him plead guilty to common assault. Wow. And he doesn't go to jail one day. He gets the ankle bracelet. This is a guy that shot three guys. Wow. I found about it. I blew my gasket. I went running over to the homicide inspector. I said, you know, they let this guy out. 
they they have him on the ankle bracelet. So I went to track him down. Of course, he had cut off the ankle bracelet. He fled out to Toronto, and him and his buddy shot a guy and a girl in uh, Peel Regional. Hmm. Then there's a hostage taking where ERT has to get him barricaded out of this house back east. And he eventually went to jail, but what is that guy doing not in jail? Yeah. That is ridiculous. But then all you might see in the news is somebody complaining that we have an armored vehicle (laughs) out of that whole situation. You're like, well, that's what it's for. Yeah. (laughs) We have violent people running around. Unreal. And, and, And this informant told me about this guy. He says, you know, Doug, I've been around a lot of bad guys. That guy scares the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's this meek, mild, tiny little Vietnamese guy that you wouldn't even think twice. Mm-hmm. He's a stone killer. Wow. Right? Those are the guys that you're letting out. It just kills me. Well, yeah. And you know what? Hopefully, uh, some things that are happening or in the works right now um, make some changes. I know the chiefs of police, uh, they've been trying to talk to the premiers right across the provinces uh, and, and kind of lobby for some changes to help protect society, which I mean, you think uh, regular citizens would be able to do that. And now the police have to basically go and do that. In addition to also taking all the calls on the street, so it's 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 such a weird world we're kind of in right now, um, and and who's doing what job and and how things are just kind of twisted up. So hopefully some of this kind of gets settled. Uh, one thing I did want to ask too was, uh, you know, where I first heard of you was you were mentioned in a book I was reading from Sam Cooper, Willful Blindness. So yeah, ha- have you ever met him or how did you get into the book or? No, I haven't met him. Uh, he phoned me up. He said, I'd like to interview you. He says, I know you know a lot of these uh, Asian gangsters from your time in there. And I said, sure, call me up. So I had a chat with Sam. Great guy. Yeah. And uh, we had a picture. I was telling him we did a search warrant on this big circle gang members residence. Yeah. This guy was one of the biggest gangsters in Vancouver. And uh he, uh, we go in and start doing the search warrant and sitting above his couch on the wall is a picture of him and the premier of BC, oh. Glenn Clark time. And we all look at one another. Whoa, this guy's up there in the food chain, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and not to berate Glenn Clark, he's probably just some dude that went and took a photo op with him, right? At some fundraiser or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't think Glenn Clark knows who this guy is, but the guy's connected, yep. right? And in fact, he did a, uh, the U.S. Secret Service came up and took this embossing machine that we took off these guys in the search warrant. And, uh, that embossing machine was responsible for a hundred million dollars worth of fraud in California. Oh, really? They forensically connected it to all this fraud in California. It was making these uh, making money twenty thousand credit card things, hmm. and then they did them again. He had done over a hundred million dollars in counterfeit currency in the U.S. Jeez, this guy was way up the food chain in gangs. And that guy is in the mix of all the River Rock stuff that Sam was investigating. So I background on him, right? Yeah, is all the foreign influence, casinos, like how everything was tied in together. Yeah, very interesting book. Um, so maybe you'll have to write a book one day. <laughs> sure. I've been, I've been offered by some people to write a book with them, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, well, let's kind of make sure we get into what you're doing nowadays. Uh, I want, just want a bit of clarification was the truth about gangs presentation. Is that in the odd squad work or is this completely separate and maybe led into it? No, I took it in. I had invented this with Adam Dollywall, my partner and Elvis Bellia. Uh, we started, we were out at a funeral of a young kid again in Vancouver who got shot to death in Stanley Park. 
and uh, Adam turns in to me and it had been like our fifth funeral that week. Mm-hmm. And he says, Doug, he says, only if these kids knew the truth about gangs. And we both kind of went doing, right? <laughs> yeah. Why don't we go tell them about it? So we started doing overhead projection stuff, right? And then, of course, PowerPoint came out and we made this thing and we started going to all the schools in Vancouver. And we would usually talk to the grade eight kids because our logic was teach the grade eight kids, give them that base knowledge about drugs and gangs and where it leads and let them carry it through their five years at school. Mm -hmm. Right. And it rubs off on the young kids as they come in behind them. Yeah. So the gang violence in Vancouver, the two years after we started doing that went down by like 30% around the schools. Wow. There was just, it was right there in your face. This is working. So, it, you know, and then I, I started doing it with Elvis. And then when I retired in 08 from Vancouver and went to transit, uh, the boss at transit says, Doug, you're going to keep doing those presentations, right? I says, yeah. So I started hitting up all these outside schools in New West, Surrey, uh, West Van. Uh, you know, I was going everywhere. Then I started getting officers reaching out to me because I was an odd squad. I was kind of doing it off the side of my police desk. Okay. I started to go in Alberta. We went up to Fort Mac. We went up to uh, Inuvik, Dene, uh, Edmonton. I went and mm-hmm. gave a couple of talks at youth gang conferences, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And I, I it allowed me when I joined Odd Squad to like fan out, right? I went and gave a talk at uh, a place called Better Middle School, which was Clay Roosh, the leader of the UN gang. That was his school. Oh, wow. Right? So I went and started talking to kids about gangs there. And there's a funny story there, tragic, funny. After the talk, this young little grade eight girl comes up to me and he says, or she, she says, you know, my dad was in the UN gang. And I said, really? Yeah, my dad was shot to death in front of our house. Mm. And there's this guy that was flying helicopter loads of dope across the border, and he actually got shot right in front of his house. And the people at the school had no idea who her dad was. Yeah, yeah. I said, this little girl is Dwayne's daughter. He was shot to death a couple months ago in Chilliwack. And it, I thought, man, am I talking to the right people here? Yeah, right? yeah. That was almost a presentation you need for the the teachers and the administration too. At that point, oh, totally. And then um, from that, Abbotsford started doing their own gang presentations. They asked me, "Hey, Doug, are you okay if we start our own thing?" I said, "Whatever you need. You guys should be talking to their, they're your students." Mm-hmm. So Abbotsford went from the the highest murder per capita city in Canada. The following year, the following six months, they had no murders. Oh, wow. After they started doing those presentations. Mm -hmm. It was just blatantly obvious they were reaching these kids, right? That they are the ones that were selling dope and getting involved in gangs. And they turned it right around out there. Bob Rich, Mike Sear, all the Abbotsford members. Yeah. Um, pretty outstanding. Well, you know what? Um, one of the things too, like in the description for the Odd Squad work, it says that you give visceral reality-based documentaries. And I saw a few pictures. Like, do you bring actual um, like firearms that have been seized? Like, are you, do you bring those in to show people like this is what things look like? Uh, what, what exactly is the, the reality-based part of it? Yeah, we'll we'll bring kids in and show them real firearms. We'll show them hold up a fake firearm and a real firearm. We'll say which one's real and which is fake, mm-hmm. and they, they can't tell us, right? Um, we'll bring in ex-gang members to talk to the kids, yeah. kids that have lived through their bad choices by some miracle. We bring in ex-drug addicts. Mm-hmm. We 
interview them, show videos of them talking about that lifestyle and drugs and the dangers and the misery it's caused them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and wherever we go, we went up to Hay River, Fort Mac, Hay River and stuff. And uh, there was a young uh, First Nations gal in the back. She's got tattoos all in her neck. We're giving this community presentation. And um, she comes up after and she says, you know, that was a really good talk. She says, I hope the kids listen. She said, I wish I had that talk 10 years ago. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean? She says, I just got out from doing seven years for murder. And she says she was in a gang in Edmonton. Um, she says, so I say to her, I said, hey, would you do an interview with us to tell kids what, how you got involved and what it's like? And she literally turns to me and said, turn the effing camera on. No, really? Nice. So I turned to Mark and I said, video this. Yeah. And I start talking right in city center of Hay River. Oh, wow. There's kids riding bikes around her and stuff. She doesn't care, right? And her story is dad's an alcoholic, mom's an addict alcoholic, brother's an alcoholic. She was sexually assaulted by her uncle when she was 11. Mm-hmm. I know she's in gangs, right? She went down to Edmonton and got recruited and started doing all this stuff. And um, yeah, the her the frankness of her interview, we can't do that. Yeah. When I play that interview with her and she talks to young girls, you can hear a pin drop. Yeah. Right. They they turn on every word she says. And uh, we've had girls come up and say, hey, yeah, they were trying to recruit me just like they did her. Right. So that's what you got to do with those presentations. You got to get real stuff. And some of it's graphic. Mm-hmm. And But very few teachers ever say anything negative. They're like, oh, boy, the kids needed to hear that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of parents try to hide their kids in the closet so they don't see it. Uh, you know, that's later man there's the thing called the internet well right? and exactly you know these kids nowadays are learning stuff way younger um and it's all there in full explicit videos uh you can get all kinds of things i mean we see people posting videos of shootings and murders that's right on instagram right on facebook it's not hard to find um but also the, you can't bubble wrap people forever like you you do got to be real. Um, I think kind of sheltering people from everything. Like we can't even say words in a certain context. It doesn't have to be like, like uh, a racist term or something. Even if you're saying it in the context of when it was used, people are getting shut down for that now. So words have become uh, violence, uh, which makes no sense. But they're saying, you know, words are violence. Well, what's real violence then? Now, what is that called? <laughs> so, yeah. And, you know, I, I always tell the kids, I said, you know, I'm not here to make you feel bad about your culture or anything. And, he, and in fact, I've arrested more white gang members than any other race. Yeah. The issue is what do newspapers print? Vietnamese gangs out of control. They use that race thing. Yeah to inflame people's feelings and stuff, right? South Asian gangs in Vancouver out of control. It's a crock. Yeah. You're trying to sell newspapers, yep. right? And the police know that. But the police are now deemed like, oh, you're picking on those, you know, the poor Vietnamese guys or the poor South Asian guys. You know, if a guy's purple with pink polka dots yeah. and he's committing robberies, that's the guy I'm going to arrest. Yep. Yeah, and we, you know what, um, like, this podcast, your odd squad group, getting the message out there is something I think police haven't done a good job at. So that's why we have these platforms now and do these presentations to get in front of the right people, especially the youth. That is probably the biggest thing, starting with the youth. It'd be nice if they almost had these kind of programs or just kind of built into uh, uh, curriculums, you know, and give people an education on real life. This is what's really going on out there. It's not all sunshine all the time. There's, you never know what the person sitting next to you is dealing with. 
And, um, you know, just because things look great on the surface, they might not be. So uh, I want to make sure I give you time to just because we're coming up to the hour here. I say I wouldn't keep you too much longer. Uh, How can people find you and follow the work that you do? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, Oddsquad.com. Um, OSP, D Spencer OSPs, the handle on Twitter. Um, it, we do presentations all over. Mm-hmm. We're traveling up it, next month. We're going up to Williams Lake to give community presentations on gangs. They have a lot of issues up there right now uh, with a number of stabbings and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, they want to educate the community and the kids about, you know, the truth about gangs, because when a kid comes and recruits them from school, mm-hmm. they're not telling them the truth. They're telling them, hey, you're going to make this much money. You're going to drive this nice car. Yeah. And all the flash stuff. Right. So we go up to those communities. Uh, you know, we've been up north. Uh, we will go anywhere. We, we've been to uh, John VA, Alberta. We went to the, the reserve there. And the people were really nice. And uh, they were losing kids to gangs. Mm-hmm. Like monthly kids were get going down into Edmonton and stuff and getting involved in gangs. When I went to uh, Inuvik, the week before we went there, there was a shooting. And what happened, some of these gangsters from Edmonton, I think they were called the White Picket Fence Boys or something like that. Mm. Some gang. This is way back. Okay. I'm probably screwing up the gang name, but like White Boy Posse. White Boy Posse. There yeah, you go. they were super violent, like chopping heads off and stuff. <laughs> they they showed up in Anuvik and they were selling dope out of this car to all the kids. Well, Anuvik, they're all hunters. Hmm. A couple of the dads got together and unloaded on the car with AKs, filled it full of holes, and they told the guy, get out of town. Yeah. That because they saw their kids getting addicted, yep. right? And they sent a message to these guys from Edmonton: "Get out of here! We don't want your drugs. We don't want your gangs." Mm-hmm. And I'm advocating vigilante stuff, but that's reality. Yeah, they're trying to protect their kids from the the evils and the misery of drug addiction, right? When you uh, maybe one last question here: just uh, when you go into certain communities, so if you go to like an indigenous community. Do you have like a, I don't know, like a data bank where you can just call up somebody who was in one of the First Nation gangs, a street gang, and bring that person? Because I don't like, or do you just, you know, it's like, are you going to bring a Hell's Angel to that group? Like, would it resonate with them as much? Yeah, we have lots of videos of gang members we've interviewed. So obviously, okay, show the interview with the the First Nations girl I'm talking about, Hey River. Mm-hmm. We have that video. So we will show that video. So all the young First Nations girls in that community see that. Yeah. And it, we, you know, interviews with a First Nations guy, a guy that was involved in home invasions and stuff. And he's now an a addict in the downtown east side of Vancouver, right? He's from Saskatchewan. And to hear him talk about what gang gangs, the gang life has cost him. It's compelling Mm -hmm. when these young First Nations kids see somebody like them from their culture. And, you know, most both of them said, listen to your elders. Mm -hmm. Because that's a pretty prevalent thing in their culture, right? Yeah. Respect of the elders. And, uh, man, they both wish they listened to their elders because they didn't. And they've been in prison one did seven years one did uh eight and the one's a complete drug addict now you can you, you barely understand him when he talks right Jeez, he's on heroin and stuff so um yeah we kind of will form the presentation to the audience for sure okay great well i think you got a good message i think it's a, a very unique work that you're doing and it's good that you guys have the ability to travel and you can get to all these places, especially some of these more remote communities, right? Nobody else is going up there. So 
Yeah. Um, thanks for the work that you do. And uh, I hope you guys you know, can keep it up. Um, I want to say thanks for coming on today. If you could hang on the line, uh, I'll say bye offline. Yeah, I'll just uh, mention one thing. The We have some videos that we did, documentary videos. They're for sale, and you can contact God Squad, but they have teaching curriculums with them. Okay. So if some small little community outside Edmonton wants to get the video, there's one on drug addiction, one on gangs, they can get those, and you don't have to know about gangs or drugs. It's all there. It, it shows the interviews with these addicts and stuff. Mm. And then there's a set of questions. They could teach a class to whatever group of students or anybody with them. And we purposely did that, that, you know, we can't be everywhere at once. So yep. any community can get in touch with us, get one of those videos with the teaching guide and give a, a, a lecture to their students. Yeah, that's a, that's a cool idea. I mean, Get it, get it out there in, in as many formats as possible. Totally. Great. Well, thank you uh, for taking the time uh, and coming on here and educating us on uh, all things gangs. Yeah, and um, certainly may your two guys in Edmonton rest in peace, brother. That's uh, disturbing. Uh, thank you. Much appreciated. Okay.